Well, good morning again. And, uh, you know, it's pretty cool. I know last week we said, hey, it's going to be about three weeks till those shade sales come up. But we slapped some Christ patches on those guys. They got it done last week. It was awesome. No. Um, no. No, I'm just kidding. But you all have yours ready. But we are excited that those are up there. I just stood under them after first service just because I can. It's nice. It uh, definitely is going to help the temperatures out there. Thank you all of you who have been participating and giving towards that. But we are here in our last, and I'm kind of sad because I really like that bumper, but this is our last week in, uh, in this series on branded living. And so we're going to dive in and take a look one more time at just how our lives are supposed to be branded by Christ. And so before we do that, though, let's go ahead and pray and just, uh, just to connect with our God. Lord, we do. We come before you. We ask your presence to be here today to lead us, train us, teach us, guide us, upset us, move us how you need to move us. Lord, we're not here just to, just to be entertained. We are here to participate and to know you, to, to worship you, to, to learn of you, to encounter you. And so as we get into your word and as we walk through this time, teach and lead, we pray. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, there's been a, a growing situation in our culture, especially here in Corona and down in Elsinore and all around, that... I think it's just part of the California world, or maybe it's just part of life in general in, the, in a fast-paced society. But the more we try to connect with each other, the more we try to say, hey, hey, maybe you should come be a part of this or be a part of this thing that we're doing together. And we have a tendency to answer, well, man, I would love to do that, but I'm just too busy. Busy seems to be that word that everybody feels, everybody knows. All I have to do is kind of say busy, and many of us in this room right now are feeling like, oh, that makes me stressed out, don't even mention it. And I get it, because actually I stood back and I was thinking about it, I'm like, man, we really live like we should live, right? You would have eight hours of sleep every day, right? So that's four hours from 12 on, and then four hours in the evening, and we're like, yeah, right, none of us are getting 12 hours, or eight hours of sleep. Some of you are getting 12 hours of sleep, teenagers, uh, the, but... um. But really, eight hours of sleep, and then boom, you're supposed to lock in eight hours of work with one hour of lunch sandwiched in the middle of your eight hours of work. And then you may have a commute that's anywhere from an hour to three hours, and depending on where you're, and some of you are like, that's short. Some of you are like, it's four hours, two hours there, two hours back. Some of you guys have long commutes you've added into your lives. And when you add up all this stuff along with, and I'm hoping you're taking a shower every day and you're, and you're eating breakfast and you're getting dinner, when you add up all these pieces, really you're down to about three hours of time with a family member, of time to connect with your children, time to connect with one another. And if you're wasting any of that on binge-watching something on, on Netflix or on a screen, you're losing dramatic amounts more of, of that time, that precious time. And so no wonder when the church is like, hey, can you volunteer? You're like, oh, man, I'd love to, but I'm busy. Or, hey, you know, if you want to come over to our house to do a barbecue, man, I'd love to, but I'm busy. Busyness is owning our lives because we are busy. This is a, a, a vast and difficult set of time to work in is so tight. So you get to your weekend, you're like, I love my weekends. They're all for me. Actually, no, most of us are out at a field with our children dealing with the field and dealing with people. And so you wind up in a scenario where you're out all the time working with your time disappearing, maybe on a freeway, maybe on a field, maybe a family, maybe screens, maybe sleep. But what I want to do today is, is talk to you about this verse that we're looking at. And I don't want it to freak you out. I'm not here to make your stress greater. I want to just shape your stress. I'm not here to put more in your time. I'm here to take your time and give it meaning. And I think that's what this text is supposed to do. 
Because we're, we're here in the book of Colossians, and what we're doing is we're lining things up to, so that Christ can brand it. He can smack his name on it. See, in the book of Colossians, there's this small church about eight years old that Paul has written a letter to because they need help. They're immature. They've had a false teacher telling them all these rules and regulations they need to be doing in order to have the presence of God in their life. And Paul's like, you don't need any of that. You just need to grow up by focusing on Jesus. And as you focus on Jesus, you're going to put away all these rules and regulations, all this flesh and legalism, all this stuff. No, and just we're going to follow Jesus together. And so he sums it up in one final verse in verse 17 of chapter 3. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, in word or deed, no matter what you're doing it, how you're doing it, you need to do it in the name of Jesus so that whatever you're doing, he would be able to, willing to put that stamp on it, take that sticker off and go, boom, it's got Jesus' name on it. That's what the goal is, that we would live a life in such a way that Jesus would be seen through us. And that includes our time. Now, what's interesting about our time is the majority of us are probably really only gathered around in the church setting here at church for maybe about two to four hours at max. Most of our lives are spent away from the gathering of brothers and sisters in the church. Very little of our time is actually dealt with here on a campus of a church. And so most of your time, if you're not sleeping or around your family, you are probably engaged with non-Christians. And so Paul wants to center in on that very concept, what the majority of your time is looking like and how it works. And so he starts talking about that in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. So if you want to grab your Bible, you can open it up there. We're going to read that together, and we're going to look at these two verses and how we're supposed to take and brand our time and brand our time around non-Christians so that we can get the most out of it. And so it starts here in verse 5 and reads like this. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so that's, that's the goal here, that we walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. And really the focus is the time. There's this centerpiece of time that he's aimed at. And what he's saying is you and I need to have we need to be careful to buy back the time. What do I mean by buy back the time? Actually, it's, it's right here in the text. The verse right here in verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. That term best use is this word redeem, to purchase back, to buy back. And time is, is a special term. In their day, they didn't have clocks. They didn't have watches. They didn't have digitals. They, they didn't even have um, cuckoo clocks. Cuckoo clocks don't come around, and little uh, clocks with um, gears and stuff aren't around until like the 14, 1500s. Prior to that, you had probably a water clock or you had a sundial. Or you had one of the sand, one of those, you know, Gla sand glasses or what our glasses, but other than that, no, it was a sundial. Jesus' world, all they knew if they had any form of time was a sundial. Little things showing the shadow of the sun as it moved. And that meant there was divide up into 12 hours, but every single day the hours were different. Some days the hours were longer than other days, depending on what season it was. And so they thought of time very differently than we think of time. We think of the tyranny of the clock and the, and the seconds are ticking away. They experience it in a very different way. 
And so they had two words for time. They had this idea of chronos time. And that was what we're talking about, chronology. And it's where we get that, where we get our word chronology from is this kind of moment by moment, day by day, minute by minute, second by second, millisecond by millisecond, moment by moment, you know. But then they had another word. This word was a different word. It was the term kairos. And the word kairos meant the moment. It was more like a season. This is the moment. Seize this season to get out there and sow the seed. Seize this season to get out there and reap the field. This is the time period for that. It's the kairos. If you miss out on it, you've missed out on something that's not coming back. And the word kairos is what's used here. He's saying, listen, we want to seize and redeem, buy back this kairos time. Because this is a special time. It's not like any other time. This is Jesus' time is really what they're getting into. Because see, what happens with Jesus is that he changes the time. Throughout the book of Colossians and its sister book, the book of Ephesians, they talk about our current age, our current time this, as being evil. And what they mean by that, it's a time that was focused upon idols. It was a time that's been focused upon other things other than God. And our time, it's no different. If you listen to the messages of our time, if you listen to what people are telling you, they're saying, live for you. Be the best you you can be and live for you. Only you know who you are and only you can be exactly who you can be. So be you. Man, that sounds so empowering. It sounds so exciting until you meet Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, you want to ruin your life? Just run after you. Because the best kind of living, the best way to live is to live for someone else. And that someone else is God who teaches you then to live for others. Because that's what Jesus did. He lived for his father. And then from his living for his father, he loved us so much that he'd be willing even to die for us. That's a sacrificial life that we've been called to live. And it's not living for me. It's living for others. The best way to live is to live for someone else. And Jesus lays this out and he says, so I'm going to live in such a way that I've died for you. I've, I've borne your sin. I've taken upon myself all the mess and all the punishment, all the garbage of this world. And he swallows it and he, in a sense, buys the time, it says. He, he purchases the time. It's his time now. It's his age. They call it the messianic age. And in a real way, then we get to redeem the time. Think of it more like Jesus just gave you a Jesus gift card. And we all love gift cards, right? I mean, um, nobody is, uh, gift cards are great because I can go get what I want or I can store that away for a better time when I know what I want. And usually we give gift cards because we don't know what to get the person anymore. And so what we do is we, we buy this gift card and we go, all right, here's the gift card. Now your money is not being given to them. You could give them money. But what we do is we buy the gift card and the company now own, has the money and you have to take the card and redeem the money for what you want out of it. Jesus has the time. It's his. And now he's given you himself. He's given you his spirit. He's given you his mission. And he says, here, it's my time. Go redeem it. Go buy it back because I have it. Go get it back and there's something I have in it. This is what I need. And so he has a particular mission and a particular vision for how we spend our time. Now, this, again, isn't about adding more things into your life. You know what it takes to have a good walk with God. We've talked about that before. We know what it takes in order to keep ourselves centered in Christ, but we're busy. So what I want to do is remind us that what he is telling us is not, hey, you know, go do more stuff. He says, shape your stress, give it meaning, point yourself in a direction. And here's the direction you have. In John chapter 20, verse 21, he, he's now resurrected from the dead. He's been crucified. He was dead for, for the, that, those three days. He comes to life. He shows to himself to the apostles. 
And in this, he says, here's what I've got for you. I'm going to breathe on you, give you the Holy Spirit. And then he says these words, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. As the Father sent me, he said, I've been sent to be a ransom for many. I've been sent to live and, and die to purchase people and bring them back. I've been sent to seek and save the lost. I've been sent to heal the sick, to stand for the poor. In the same way Jesus was sent, so you and I are sent. And the same mission that he was sent on is our mission now because he sent us in the name of his Father. Another way that we could just simply translate this is, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Live a branded life in Christ. Live where he would stamp his name on it. Say, absolutely, that is how you spend the time. That is what you do. You get out there and you live for my name. So let's put it this way. Let's get practical. You're on the freeway and many of you men and women, you've got to drive in traffic to get to your work. And you know why traffic is upsetting and angering? Because you have somewhere to get and everybody else is in front of you trying to get somewhere they got to get, right? And so they're impeding your progress. And when that happens, a frustration occurs. It happens at work. When somebody doesn't get their work done, that impedes your progress. You get mad because when your progress is impeded, anger is right there. And so traffic is frustrating and angering to us because we can't Get where we want to go. So Jesus says, the reason you're mad is you're focused on the wrong thing. Stop driving in traffic to get to work. What if you were to drive in traffic to meet the Lord? What if you were to turn your car not into, an, not into a small occupancy vehicle that gets you somewhere, but it turns it into a place in which you encounter the living God? No, you, and you have the tools nowadays. All you have to do is take your cell phone, load the right apps on, put the right podcasts on. Suddenly now you have the Bible you can listen to. You can call somebody to pray with who's also in traffic and you can pray for your souls and the other souls around you. You can simply engage in learning more about the Lord. You can, you can, you can take in leadership podcasts, improve your work because you're a Christian. You want to stamp it with Christ. All of these things can be done. And so that when you're in traffic, if you're enjoying your time with the Lord, you actually thank him there's worse traffic that day because you get more time with him. It changes, it shapes the stress to a different outcome. Instead of going to the field and yelling and screaming at these poor referees who are being paid to watch your kids because your kid's losing, you think that was unfair, and I just can't handle this. Ah! And we do that because we've not got enough sleep. We've been stuck on a freeway, and we're stressed out, right? I mean, I get why we're doing that. But what if we were there not to win games? What if they're not to really learn the skills because, and, and make the long shot lotto attempt of, of having our children enter into professional sports? What if we were there to engage and make friends and build an opportunity to give away the gospel? And we took that really seriously and not just the excuse why we didn't make it to church one Sunday. That we're literally, intentionally doing these things. You're having them to your house. You're inviting them in. You're connecting with these people. You see this opportunity. You know if you blew your cool, you lose your opportunity. What if we turned in the time of eating at the table, not to a place to fork as much as you can into your mouth, to get out the door, to get to the next thing you need to go to, but a place where you stop and say, you know what, I know we got to hurry, but what we're going to do is we're going to pray together and we're going to quickly review our highs and lows for the day and what God showed us. You stop and you use it for a minute to reset and connect with your family, to love your children and to connect them to Christ. Shape your time. Too many of us are ruled by our calendars instead of buying back, as Christ has called us to do, the time 
that we have, that whatever we do in word or deed, we do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We buy it back. Now, again, the majority of this time is going to be buying it back around those who are outsiders, as it says, non-Christians. And so what we need to do is let our time, especially around non-Christians, be branded by Jesus. And I want to make this absolutely clear because there are some outsiders who you've, you've come to visit today and maybe you've expected vitriol and anger. I just want to apologize if, if Christians have yelled and screamed at you online. That is not what you're going to hear is called for. And you've met Christians who are just mean cusses of people because they're just judgmental jerks. I want you to see that's not what Jesus and Paul and the Bible is calling us to. But for us as Christians, we're called to be wise when we're around non-Christians. Notice he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Now, the word outsiders is important. First of all, that means you're going to be around non-Christians. Um, there, there's no excuse for us to not be. There's no excuse for us to, to not have friends who are non-Christians. In fact, most of the statistics is most Christians, evangelicals, by the eighth year of their faith, stop having non-Christian friends altogether. They just don't. And part of it is because there's this concept that sin's like a virus. That I get too close to somebody who's got sin, they're like, oh, they're going to get me all diseased and I'm going to end up being a sinner. Ugh. Newsflash, you already are a sinner. Just ask your spouse or your friend or your, or your children. <laughs> amen? And everybody who didn't say amen, you are a sinner, trust me. But the, um, the point is that, guys, it doesn't rub off. We need to walk with wisdom, not with fear. Too many of us assume the wrong concept that sin is actually a matter of your choice from what's going on inside of you. It comes from within. It doesn't come from outside. And so you should have friends who are not Christians, who are outsiders. Second, this is, note this, it says it calls us outsiders. That's in reference to whether you're in the church being part of the people. Christianity is not an individual thing. It's a team effort. You follow Jesus together. And the Bible illustrates and understands you as either being a part of the community or you're an outsider. You can't follow Jesus and be an outsider at the same time. And so we need to see that this is, hey, when you're walking with wisdom, you're walking amongst those who are not part of the community, who are outsiders outside of Christ. It's not insulting, it's just a reality. And that happens at work. It happens on Facebook and social media like Twitter and Instagram. It happens amongst our, our, our freeways. It happens when we're at the fields. It happens when we're at the stores. It happens in your neighborhood. And this is our common location. And we need to be wise, especially in a world that's watching you for hypocrisy, watching you for implicit bigotry and bias. And, ah, they are watching and so because they've believed a caricature of us. And so we need to be wise in how we engage. In fact, the first thing that I would say is be wise by not engaging the old life of sin. That's not what we're called to. That's hypocrisy. In fact, Peter puts it this way. For the time, for the time, this is Kronos time, this time of sequential moments, that is past. All the time you've had in your past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Hey, you've had enough time to gossip. You've had enough time to lie. You've had enough time to get drunk. You've had enough time to sleep around. That's all in the past. That's over for Christians. We don't do that. We had plenty of time to do that before. We don't need to do it now. And it wasn't helpful then anyway. So let's move forward. Let's put that in the past and not 
live out in these ways. And so when you're at work and they invite you out to go to that, that you know, special place to eat where people are dancing in a way that you don't need to see, kindly excuse yourself or suggest a different location. Or maybe you're at a situation where you've been invited to that weekend party, go to the party, don't get drunk. You shouldn't get drunk. But it doesn't mean you don't go to the party. Because you need to be engaging in a way that's wise. Now, be wise at the party. If there's things happening at the party that are clearly not good and you know aren't good for you, don't go. Be wise. This isn't being legalistic. Remember, this is about following Jesus together, not a bunch of rules and laws. This is about being wise. And if you need to be wise, I would advise you to read wisdom. One of the best places you can become wise is from the book of Proverbs. One of the smart practices many wise people I know do is they read one chapter of Proverbs every single day and they roll through the whole book of the book of Proverbs every month. So there's 31 chapters and so they'll go through the 30 and then they'll do 31 and they'll do 30 and then there's 28 because February is weird, but I don't know why that's weird, but that's what it happens. And so we have this kind of journey that you go through of wisdom and it'll teach you so much about how to deal with people. I'll give you just a couple. Proverbs 12, 18. This is critical to our modern day. It says, there, are, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Anybody seen those people? Encountered them online? I mean, we could just rewrite the proverb. There are trolls, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. There are those who are just vicious with their words. They cut you down. They bag on you. They stab you. They chop, chop, chop. No. If you're doing that online, you're sinning. Stop. And you're not being wise. I don't care what your political opinion is. That is not the route to make a difference. Jesus does not need you to yell at someone to back him up. God does not need our anger to accomplish his righteousness. In fact, he says, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Guys, we need to be wise when we're engaging. If it's making you angry, don't go there. Be wise. I'd rather you lose an argument than lose an opportunity to present Jesus Christ. Because there are those of us in this room whose words are rash and the Bible's calling us fools. Because we're not thinking about what we're saying. We're just like, chop, chop, chop. No, don't do that. Be healing. Speak healing words. Speak powerful words that shape and change minds. Speak words that guide and lead. Yes, there will always be people yelling and screaming. Just remember, when they do that, they've already shown their fools. We don't have to be one with them. Be wise. Be wise with your words. Be wise with your ways. Another proverb says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. I believe much of the racism we see that's around so many places would go away if we simply would sit down and listen to each other and learn from each other and find out about each other and stop assuming so much. It's fools who take no pleasure in understanding. We just assume, I know what you are, and ah, they only spout their opinions. How much the wise need to listen. How much we need to be great people who take in and learn the opinions of others. Whether we agree with them or not, we can learn them. We can understand where they're coming from and still disagree with them. That's wisdom. 
Wisdom is the ability to make the argument for the other person, even though you don't agree with them, so that you can understand and meet them where they're at. This is wisdom that we have as we walk around those who are different from us, who don't believe the same thing as us. And so we need to be wise also, not just with our words, not just with our ways, but with those critical moments. Guys, there are critical moments we're missing. People who are going through transitions because they're going through divorce or they're going through a move or their children are leaving the house or maybe they're going through a trial, be it a physical trial with their medical condition or a financial trial. And if we haven't been able to be there to build the relationships, we don't have an opportunity to share the critical wisdom that we've been given from the Word of God to help and care. And we need to be close enough to people to see these critical moments of what's going on so we can be there and be a part of it and be there with healing words, be there with not, not being life drains, but with wisdom to guide and help and lead. And so I want you guys to understand, I don't want you to ditch out on these connections because you're like, well, I'm just not wise enough. I'm not going to figure this out. No, the way you become wise is engage and make mistakes. You learn from your mistakes if the first mistake you make is thinking, I, don't, I can't do this, then learn from that mistake and say, no, I need to do this. You're going to get engaged with people. You're going to mess up. You're going to say dumb things. You're going to write the wrong thing at the time because guess what? We're all sinners. And we're not going to get it perfect. But we need to grow in wisdom. And you grow in wisdom, you grow in skill by practicing that skill, not by sitting and just reading books and, and going, well, one day, well, maybe when I've really got this down, then I'm going to do it. And, and I'll be honest, I watched this in the life of, of my brother-in-law who works in the fire industry, who's done some amazing hard work at growing in wisdom and how to engage people who, who, are, who aren't Christians. Because it is a tough world in the fire department in the middle of the frat brother house where they're all you know, jumping around, great at saving people. Sometimes they're just crazy and mean to each other and get into all kinds of interesting argumentations. And he's trying to point to Christ without looking like the crazy person because they'd love to mock him for it. And so he's having to figure out when do I bring this up and how do I not get angry and when do I do And it's because he's engaged, he's learning wisdom. Wisdom isn't going to be learned from sitting back and being a spectator. It happens by engaging and being a part, being involved in it. And don't think, man, I, well, I don't have any, any good ability at this. I'm not really good at this. I can't really do that. I'm just going to take that off the table because you have something that's greater than an education. You have something that's greater than great words. Now, education and great words are both helpful and necessary in some cases, but look, you have the Holy Spirit. God is with you for this purpose. In the book of Acts, Jesus is, they're like, when are you going to come back? When's the end of the world going to happen? Jesus is like, just don't worry about that stuff. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The reason the Spirit of God has come is to help you so you can engage with wisdom to the outsiders, so that you can engage with wisdom to other people. It's not that you have all the answers already pre-prepped and ready to go. It's not that you're all good and you've read how to, how to make friends and win influence and all that stuff, and now you're really good at it. No, trust the Spirit of God knows exactly what he's doing by selecting you to connect with that person. He is with you for this purpose. Your God wants to connect with you. He wants you to be able to do this. And so he's present with you in your place to help you be wise so that we can have that opportunity to one day give the gospel. Now, that, that means clearly our speech needs to be branded by Jesus as well. That speech needs to be so careful. 
As we've seen already, we can say a lot of dumb things and make a lot of bad opinions and spout a lot of stuff we shouldn't say. And maybe we need to back off and stay away a bit, and that's smart. But especially when he says, look, your, your words need to be gracious. Notice, notice how he puts it. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. That word gracious is important because it's based on the term grace. Now, grace is something that isn't deserved. It's just given, undeserved. It's favor that you didn't earn and you, don't, you didn't get because you're such a good person. No, grace is just they want to give it to you. Gracious words are not given because the person respected you. Gracious words are not given in return because they were nice. Gracious words are given because we're to give gracious words. We need to speak civilly and kindly and, in fact, lovingly, which means however they treat us, we're not going to treat them that way. We want to treat them as we want to be treated, and so we give gracious words. The Proverbs, again, state that gracious words are like honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healthy to the body. I love this. Honeycomb, if you've ever had it, and I really, the only time I've really had much honey is when I'm eating Mediterranean desserts. Like, you go to a Mediterranean restaurant, and you're like, I'll take some baklava, and you're like... That's honey, and it's pretty much because honey in the ancient world, outside of fruit, was the only other sweet thing in the world. They didn't have sugar cane. That was over here in the, in the, in the North, North America, South America area. They didn't have sugar cane yet. They had honey, and so honey was their candy. Honey was their dessert, and it's like saying this, and, and take this home, kids, to your parents. Gracious words are like dessert. They're sweet to the soul and healthy to the body. I always thought dessert was healthy to the body too. So um, no, honeycomb is healthy. It's the idea of our speech, gracious speech, improves the life. It improves the soul. It makes that person want more of you. Do you speak in such a way that people are like, man, I want to connect with that person again. I want to hang out with them again. And they were encouraging. You know those people, you, you, you seek to be around them. You don't seek to be removed from them. And so we need to be a people who seek to be gracious with our words. And also with salt. So Jesus had said this way. He says in Mark 9.50, he says, salt is good. I think it just ended it that way. That's weird. But, but it's salt has lost its saltiness. How are you going to make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. He's saying, look, salt is good. And salt is found in these simple things. It's done in three ways. Salt is a preservative. They would roll food and put food in this salt, and then they would be able to put it away and store it for a long time. So salt was a preservative. Salt also is used in medicinal ways. We use it today still. If you've ever soaked in Epsom salts and stuff like that, salts were used to pull toxins out of bodies. The primary use, even in Jesus' day for salt, was to flavor food. It was intended to draw flavor out, to draw out the, the richness of what was already in the food so that you wanted more. In fact, salt was made to make you thirsty. And so the picture here is the idea of plating food. Anybody heard of plating food? If you've ever been on the, and watch HGTV or something, you're like, oh, plating food. It's like how you specially put it down. Well, plating food also includes like how you cook the food in such a way that it's desirable. Because really, if you think about it, the four meat bases that we use, we use fish, we use poultry, we use red meat, and we use pork. Man, that's it. I mean, I mean, we're not really into lamb as a culture, but that's pretty much our, our base. You can make fish as sushi. You can cook the salmon. You can roll it in butter and bread it. You, we got Chick-fil-A. We've got El Pollo Loco. And then you've got, I think Kentucky Fried Chicken still chicken, right? I think that's, that's the truth. And you've got, and, and you got 
finger licking good all over the place. So it's just, you got all these ways to try to make you want to eat the chicken. You got wood ranch and you've got great ways to make steak and make you want to eat the steak. Got great ways the pork is prepared and you want to eat the pork. They're all of, because who doesn't want bacon? And so we've got all these different things to make us want more of it, even though we ate it yesterday. How are you plating the gospel? How are you seasoning the gospel with salt? How are you seasoning your message so that it's understood and wanted more? A great question to do when you go to work is to ask a good, somebody close to them just say, I need you to be honest with me. What do people think of me in the office? If they, tell, if they come to you, or what do people think of me out in the field? What do they think of me? If they say, oh man, I'll just be honest with you, they try to avoid you. Why? Oh, you're the Jesus guy. It's likely you've been sneezing Jesus all over people. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Sorry. Thinking somehow if you just be a Jesus all the time, that they're going to be like, yeah, man, I really want Jesus. You know what happens invariably is people go like, I don't want to catch whatever that is. It's annoying. And they move away. And they, they keep a distance from, from you because you're not plating it. You're trying to shove it into their mouth. Be wise. You need words, yes, and we should use words. But let's plate our words. You know, one of the things you need to sometimes do when you're not in church kind of scrub out the Christianese. You say, what? Look, when you go out and work and you're in the construction and you're sitting there and you're like, so how's your day, man? They don't go, oh, I'm blessed. I've never heard that from my secular friends. I'm blessed. Really? Now, some may if they've got a background, but most of the guys, they're like, they drop an F-bomb with, yeah, Evan, good, or whatever, and that's that's the way they speak. You need to be careful when you back up. You want to go, am I using language they don't get? I'll give you an example. Do you know the word sin isn't in the Bible? Yes, it is. It's right here. No, no. Let me explain. The word is actually in the Greek Bible, harmateo. It's, that's sin. We, we use the word sin to translate that Greek word. But guess what? Even that word sin today doesn't really make sense because sometimes we mean, oh man, that's sinful. And we think, does that mean I'm supposed to buy it or stay away from it? Because it can be used in both terms in our context. But the word sin in and of itself is taking the concept of harmateo, taking the concept of that idea in the Greek Bible, trying to find the right English word that fits with it. And some people want to use the word evil. Some people want to use the word bad. Some people want to use the word this. I find that what you've got to do is you've got to back off and say, what is the right words to explain the concept? And sometimes you don't even have to use the word sin. You don't have to use the word repent, which actually means to turn around, to change your mind in, in the Greek and repent means something completely different in our mindset today. We want people crying and like in front of altars, bawling. That's repent. When in their day, it just meant turn around, take a U-turn, switch your mind. So how do we use the right concept without freaking people out with the wrong word? Because watch, use the word sin, people freak out. But what if, one of the ways I've found that's helpful, and this is one of the ways I've plated the gospel in my conversations with people, I found it pretty helpful. I turned to them and said, look, if you really want me to explain what Christianity is, here's, here's how I think of it. You know, a lot of people are obsessed with identity right now. Like, where's their identity come from? And, you know, some people think it comes from inside of them, what they think of themselves. Some people think it comes from the culture and what they do in the living. And I said, no, identity doesn't come from anybody in the world. It doesn't come from yourself. It's given to you by the one who makes you. And so God made you 
in his, with his identity on you. And in a way, what he did is he handed you his wallet with his ID and his keys. And he said, here, I want you to take this identity and, and, and live out my identity. And what we did, we went, sweet, we grabbed it. And here's the problem. While that gives you so much value and so much power and so much clout to get the chance to live out God's identity, we've messed it up. Have you ever had somebody steal your identity? I mean, you think about it. It's horrible. You try to clean it up. People have done things with your identity you would never do. They bought things with your identity you'd never buy. They spent your money in a way you'd never spend it. And then you get blamed for it. They want your money. It's infuriating if you've got to clean it up and it's not going well. Having your identity stolen is one of the most frustrating, angering things. And usually I'll ask, don't you usually want them to be arrested? Yeah, they get angry because it's wrong to steal someone's identity. And so here's the problem. Do you know why God gets mad when you lie to somebody else? I mean, why does he care you lied to them? Why does he care if you lusted after that person? Why is, how does that hurt God? It's because you took his identity. And you said, look, I'm a, God's a liar. You took his identity and turned him into a lustful being. You took his identity and you turned him into a hateful. You took his identity, which he gladly gave you, and you said, you know what he is? He's me. It's no wonder people have a problem with God. I think so many odd things about God because every time we look at another human being who's been given his identity, we misrepresent him all over the place. And if we're angry at somebody who stole our identity, how much do you think God appreciates how we've used his? Yeah, he wants us to go to jail too for what we've done and pay him back. It's not so much that, oh, well, I'll do it right now. Well, what about all the other debt and junk you racked up in his name? All the hurt and pain you've caused other people in his name. What about that? Well, I didn't know I had it. You have it, whether you like it or not. I don't know, man. I go, okay, well, here's what's happened is that Jesus was God, the true identity of God. And he came and he never broke, he never misrepresented God once. And what he did is he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to die on the cross. And on the cross, he took all of that jail time and all of that punishment that was ours because we took his identity and he cleaned it up. Because there was something against you and God. There's something that's keeping you from a relationship with God because you keep abusing God's identity. If you don't clean that up, you can't have a relationship with God. He won't let you. He's angry, rightly so. But when you accept what Jesus does on the cross, he takes that anger and he pays for it because he loved you that much. That takes some time. I never use the word sin. But you got the idea. And that's what the Bible's teaching. That he loves you so much that he doesn't want you to be punished for the way that we've represented him. The way that we've treated other people. He doesn't want us to go to what we would call hell because of our sins. So Jesus died on the cross to atone all those words. That's what I said. We've got to learn how to plate the gospel so the terminology is attractive. People hear what Jesus was saying. So they'll receive what he's done. And we need that takes some work. It takes some mistakes. It takes some mess. Mess it up. Try. Do it until it makes sense. People's eternity are at stake in this place. Let's be wise as we walk amongst the outsiders. And he says, because when you do that, then you're going to have to be ready with an answer. 
Once it's clear, once it's out there, once your life is clearly defined, once you've stated it in such a way that other people get it, now they're going to ask you a question. But note this, you have no answer unless they've asked you a question, right? Notice what it says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You can't answer a question that's not being asked. You can't just start spouting answers to things they're not asking about. When you've lived a certain way, they'll begin to ask you questions. They'll begin to wonder things. Here's a great one I love to give business people. If you want to put, the, if you want to put your Christianity more into your business presentations, quote scripture in your presentations. You say, that would never fly. Sure it does. You say, ancient wisdom says. And you watch as people drool over. There's like, ah, ancient wisdom. Whoa. I've watched it. It's pretty funny. Like, I'd straight up quote Jesus, and like, this ancient teacher said this. And they're just like, oh, and later they come, who is that ancient teacher? Oh, his name was Jesus. And they go, really? Because they, they don't know what the Bible says. And as far as I can tell, it's pretty good ancient wisdom. It's a great ancient philosophy. And something we can pass on. And, and so they come with a question. And now you've got to be ready with that answer for the question. And so you've got to be prepared. And so some of us are like, that's why I don't go out and talk to people about Jesus. Because they're going to ask me a question about evolution. I don't know how to answer it. Or they're going to ask me some question about like, what happened with the, uh, you know, with the Inqui Inquisition. And nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. But I didn't expect the question either. So I'm totally freaked out. And you know, there's all this mess that you're going to. And you're like, so I'm just not going to go out there and do it. I'm going to give you an answer. To every question that could ever be asked of you. All right? And, and it's found here in the Proverbs. It's a, first Peter tells us we need to be ready with that, question, that answer to the question. And then it says in Proverbs this. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. Let's say it again. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. When you're asked a question that you don't know, ponder. That means take some time. That means here's your answer. Hey, how do you explain this and this and this? I don't know. That's it. And then you say, let's find out the answer together. I don't know. It's a great question. Let's find out the answer together. I don't know. Here's what you don't say. I don't know. I just have faith. And that is the answer that has led more people away from Jesus than ever. Because what we just said is, I don't know, I got magic. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. See? That's not an answer. You have faith that chair will hold you because you've seen people sit in those chairs. You understand we wouldn't put a chair in here that people can't, they can't hold you. If every time you sat in a chair it broke and you fell down, you would probably stop sitting in chairs. We don't just have faith. Faith comes from evidence, comes from reasonableness, comes from observation, it comes from understanding, it comes from logic. Faith is attached to reason, understanding, science, all those pieces. It is not just faith for faith's sake. Which means the answer is, I don't know. I know there's a reason. Let's go find it. Because we want them to have a reason to believe in what they believe. Because it ain't magic. And so I want to encourage you guys to consider that you can find 
the answer. You can engage the answer. You can ponder and discover. And I would love it if my email blew up or our church's staff emails blew up with all the questions your friends are asking and you don't have an answer for because it's my job to equip you guys for the work of ministry. What a great thing. I'll give you a two-hour lecture, a book, and a triangle. You'll love it. That's the joke around here. But the point is that we will literally, we'll answer the question, we'll help you out, we'll point you in the direction, we want to give you information because, look, you can have an experience of God, absolutely, and you can trust that experience of God. You can, have, you can meet God and he'll meet you and he'll change your heart. But when they ask you a question, there has to be an answer for the reason, for the hope that you have within you. So I want to encourage you guys to have those reasons ready. I want to encourage you guys to look at your time and shape your stress. After Jesus, you see, all of you have the same time. All of you have the same time to do this. Say, I didn't say the same amount of time, I said the same time. And that same time is right now. You have right now to begin to walk with wisdom. You have right now to, to stamp your marriage with Christ, to stamp your children with Christ, to stamp your work environment with Christ, to stamp your prayer life with Christ, to stamp your time with the name of Jesus you have right now. You don't have any other time. So as we go from here, I want you guys to step out and ask yourself, God, help. how do, how do I do this? How do I be wise? Because I need to be wise right now. See, whatever we do, in word or deed, do everything, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's how we follow Christ together. Would you bow your heads with me? Right now, I want to give you an opportunity where you're at to consider the prayer request that you might have in your heart towards God and and prepare your heart for, for that. And maybe you want to take out that purple card and write those down. But others of you in this room, you're, it's time for you to, to make a decision of what you're going to do about that relationship with God. The truth is you're not right with God as you've misrepresented him. And you need to receive Jesus. And you can begin to do that right now. You just talk to him. And what you say is, God, I am asking for forgiveness in how I have treated you and how I've represented you. And I'm trusting that Jesus has paid for that punishment to make me right with you. And you may need to work through that and work on that during this time. We're going to sing a song here about God's love. I want to give you that time to really pray and talk to God about that. For others of us, you may have something you've got to work through about how you've walked with wisdom amongst outsiders or you want to pray for a name that's up on, on, this, on these frames because you long for them to know Christ. And there's somebody in that outside that you're connected with or maybe it's a family member or something. Take that time, but as we sing this song, let it be a petition and a declaration of God's love for us. So as we sing now, would you... Would you, Lord, just meet us where we're at? And God, would you just lead us as we just acknowledge your great love for us? In Jesus' name, amen.